0: Just because the Lord is the God of joy and he gives us reasons to laugh, uh, and this is is not deeply spiritual stuff, but I ran across something this week called Best Tweets of the Week, and I thought you might relate to some of this as well. Can you read that? That's a little... That's a little small for some of you near the back, so I'll just read it. The mom at the top says, One day my kid will find out that McDonald's does not sell a five-piece McNugget meal. And Any of you like would confess? Yeah, I'm aware of that. And then I love this one, another mom. When I went looking for the scissors, I didn't expect to find them hidden in my kid's bed, but here we are. and then a dad. Some of you feel this. I think my kids got Christmas list and prayer requests mixed up. (laughs) And for some of you, it will take an act of God to meet the needs or provide the resources to tackle everything that's on the Christmas list. Um, Many things that are in our hearts this time of year. And uh, we are so thankful that we can set things aside, the normal routines, the pressures of life, and there are many, and just gather right here and open God's Word for a few minutes together. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel. That's in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, it's divided into what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the New Testament is... uh, 27 books to be specific, and it begins with four different gospel accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew's the first one, Mark is the second, Luke is the third, and then John is the fourth. So find Luke, and if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find Luke 1 on page 855, As Luke records for us these birth narratives, as they're sometimes called, both of John the Baptist, that's what we looked at last week, and then this morning, the birth of Jesus the Christ, Luke, who is a medical doctor, and we'll spend a little more time in the new year, in the month of January, exploring some of his background. He's doing more than simply recording or capturing the circumstances of these two extraordinary births. He's actually laying down important truth about God's word and work as both are being revealed to us. And if you look at Luke one and verse one where he gives just a little bit of an introductory thought I'm I'm not getting cooperation here. Can you advance the slide for me, please? In Luke 1 verse 1, he tells the purpose for which Things have been written, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's Luke's friend, and look at this that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's important for us to remember that God gives us his word that you may be confident or certain, not just in the historical facts of what is being presented, but ultimately that your heart would be transformed that your mind and soul and spirit would be built up in what we often refer to as the most holy faith. And it is a faith that centers in Jesus Christ. It's more than a system of moral ethics and standards and values and principles for living. The gospel is the story of a person, and Jesus is that person. And Luke says simply, I want you to be certain. Now, jump down to verse 26 with me, please. And I want to read verse 26 through verse 56. So it's a little longer portion. It won't take us long to read it, though. Uh, just a couple of minutes. But this is uh, the prophecy of Christ's birth. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth the son of God and behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God and Mary said behold I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word and the angel departed from her. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray together. Father, your word is true. Your word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword as the scriptures teach us. And it has the authority and power and purpose of penetrating our hearts and souls, penetrating to the deepest places where soul and spirit come together. And we ask that by your word and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would penetrate those deep places within us today. We need to be convicted of our sin. We need to be convicted of our sin obstinance and pride and rebellion against you and we ask that as you bring that conviction you would quickly lead us to repent and to return uh, in full submission and humility to the Savior who has loved us and died for us. We need to have our minds and understanding sharpened. We need to have our thoughts brought into conformity with all that is true and all that you reveal to us. And again, we ask, dear Holy Spirit, that you would be the instructor and guide on this day. Protect us from drawing any incorrect conclusions. Protect me even from speaking those things that would be confusing, let alone that would lead astray. And we submit all that we are to you and pray that you would do that work where we are given life, where we are given understanding. So illuminate our minds that we may understand this glorious truth and awaken our souls that we may eagerly believe and we ask even that you would move our wills that we may just as eagerly obey all of these things we pray in Jesus name amen now with the view of finding the certainty that Luke told Theophilus he was writing for I want you to go back to verse 26 and notice some things here right out of the gate that we may be certain that God shows favor to ordinary people. Now, if you were here last week, that's a similar theme, isn't it, to what we drew out of the birth account of John the Baptist because God came to Zechariah and Elizabeth and he made promises first to Zechariah that they would have a son in their old age and Zechariah really struggled to believe but God fulfilled it and brought it to pass. Well, he's doing something similar here. But I want you to notice, first of all, just a couple of key things, because it's easy to say, well, Mary was in a different category, and there are even some very religious people today who assign attributes to Mary that the Bible actually doesn't tell us about. They would even say that she was sinless uh, up until the birth of Christ, and, and even continues in that state. And we would say that that's actually not what the Bible describes for us. I want you to notice, first of all, the favor of her ordinary life. It may not seem like a favor to you and me that we have uneventful, uh, unnotable lives, so to speak. But there are some things that remind us God is in the business of, of showing favor to very ordinary people. Did you notice in verse 52 that she referred to her humble estate? That's just a way of saying, I'm, I'm average. Low-born, even, would not be an overstatement of that. She comes from the town of Nazareth. I mean, nobody makes a big deal about being from Nazareth. It's important now because Jesus put it on the map, so to speak, but not before his birth and certainly not from Mary's account. She's also a, a woman of holy character, probably a young teenager between the ages of 13 and 14, maybe. Perhaps a little older, we don't really know, but still fairly young. But she's lived a, 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 an admirable and uh, holy life to this point. And then also, the scriptures tell us that she's betrothed to Joseph of the house of David. She's a woman with a hopeful future. But again, it's not an extraordinary future. We know where this story is going. So being uh, betrothed to a man who is of the house of David is a bigger deal than she could fully appreciate at that point. And I think most of you are aware of the fact that in Jewish culture, betrothal, uh, as was common in the ancient world, actually refers to a two-stage marriage process. It's more than what we traditionally think of as an engagement period where a man proposes marriage to uh, a woman and she says yes, and then they begin to make make plans for an actual wedding date. No, in, in Jewish Tradition, this initial phase of betrothal involved a formal witnessed agreement to marry and the giving of a bridal price and At this point, the bride legally became uh, the the uh, promised spouse of the groom, and for them to break this agreement at this point, and Matthew makes indication of this in his gospel, it actually required a legal document of divorce. It's a really big deal. So here she is, humble estate, holy character, hopeful future, but that brings us to an even more important point, and look again at your Bible with me, and notice the greeting that Gabriel gives her, because he is the messenger of God's special favor to Mary. Greetings, O favored one. And you should know that the term we translate into the English as greetings is a word we translate in other places as rejoice, be glad. But he refers to her as O favored one. That is, he's highlighting the fact that she is receiving something from God, favor from God, and she's well aware of the fact that, that this, this can't be something that, that she is uh, expecting. It's not even something that she has earned or deserved. And the confusion that ensues is evidence of this. But he says, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And he uses a term, uh, Lord, for the sovereign one. It's a, it's a powerful title of the Lord. Now, no wonder she's greatly troubled. It's a different kind of... Of troubling from what Zechariah uh, experienced when Gabriel entered the holy place while he was conducting that priestly uh, that, that priestly responsibility, we looked at that last week. No, she's she's been thrown into confusion. The greeting. And And the things that Gabriel is highlighting don't make sense to her. So she's wrestling with, "What does this mean? What, what am I supposed to do with this?" But despite her confusion and uncertainty, the reality that the Lord is with her is unchanged. And that's an important point for us to consider and think about that because we don't fully understand what God is doing at the moment, or we don't even fully understand his word, whether it be a specific passage of scripture or, or some kind of theme that he, he gives to us through the scriptures, our uncertainty and our confusion does not diminish or negate the reality of his presence, And so there is the favor of the Lord's presence. There's a second aspect of it, and I want to describe it to you as the favor of the Lord's calling. Gabriel very quickly says, do not be afraid. Mary, you have nothing to be anxious or apprehensive about. And he reinforces it, you have found favor with God. And and we can also interchange the word grace with the word favor. We know, and this is part of why we love the God of the Bible. This is part of the reason we love the Christ of this gospel. Grace has to do with unearned and unmerited favor. There's no ranking in, in Gospel Hope Church. You know, the people who've done really well, and they get five gold stars on their chart week by week, and then others who are they're doing pretty well, but they're the four-star people, and then the, all the way down to the one, and then there's the people we just don't even talk about. No, there's there's no merit system in place here. It's by God's grace that we're forgiven our sins. It's by God's grace that we receive the gift of eternal life. Gabriel is pointing to these things. It's a reminder to us that it is God's nature to be kind and gracious to people who don't deserve it. God didn't choose Mary because she had earned the spot. It is his grace at work in the life of this ordinary girl from Nazareth. And that's what makes her special. Now, look at the next phrase. Gabriel draws her attention to some important things and he uses the word behold. That is, look at this. Mary, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. And then there's a series of wills, the the shalls. These are the things that God says I will or shall come to pass. And it actually is revealing God's eternal plan. There's a term that we sometimes use for these I wills and I shalls of God. The term is decrees. In the formal sense, if you were to look this up and try to find a definition, you might find something like what Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology uses or or how he defines the term. God's decrees may be understood as the eternal plans of God whereby before the creation of the world, he determined to bring about everything that happens. Well, that ties into his title, Sovereign Lord. You have to have all authority. You have to have all all power to be able to decree anything and then bring it to pass. Well, God has decreed some things. Now, let's look at this, and this is where there's a a, a second point of certainty that I want to draw your attention to that opens up for us in verse 31 through this series of wills and shalls. Now, notice, first of all, that the Angel reveals that this child to be born is divinely conceived. What does his divine divine conception tell us? Well, look at verse 31. He says, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And skip to verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. If you know your Old Testament scripture well, you might say that sounds vaguely familiar, like some of the work that the Holy Spirit was actually doing at creation when he hovered over the formless mass and that's the, one of the glories of Genesis one into Genesis two where the Holy Spirit does this powerful creative work where he brings out of that initial chaos, kind of like a potter who throws a, a lump of clay on the wheel and there's nothing there but with skill and authority over the clay he fashions a pot or, or some vessel of beauty. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit did. And out of that initial formlessness, He brings order and abundance and beauty and glory, and it climaxes in the creation of the man and woman. Well, the Holy Spirit, who was brooding over creation in those early moments, will overshadow Mary. I found a fun little article titled, Are You a Miracle on the Probability of Your Being Born? And you, you math nuts will really appreciate all this, but all of us can, can appreciate this. I won't read the entire article, even though it's relatively short, but the author walks through a series of calculations demonstrating there is a one, and I'm just going to say bazillion, because it was a number with so many zeros behind it that I'm like, I, I don't even know what that is. So I call it a bazillion, But he calculates the probability that your two parents would even meet on planet Earth, then that they would have a relationship producing a child, and then glimpsing just a few of the biological steps that have to be successfully navigated for you to be conceived, and then finally born into this world. And listen to this quotation. After producing all kinds of numbers with lots of zeros behind them, uh, a miracle is an event so unlikely as to be almost impossible by that definition, I've just proven that you are a miracle. Now go forth and feel and act like the miracle that you are. This is written by, I mean, there's no evidence that this is a, a follower of Jesus. And, and I don't want to quibble too much. In one sense, he's not wrong. In a sense, every birth is a miracle. In the strict sense of that word, I would say it's not really a miracle. It's a marvel. It's an astonishing marvel. And even as we were looking last week at the birth of John the Baptist to Elizabeth and Zachariah, that was a great marvel, but at the end of the day, you can go, oh, normal biological processes, yeah, it's pretty amazing that a couple that old would have a child, but there's a father, and there's a mother, and therefore, there's this son. Mary's conception is a miracle, because there is no father in the biological sense, Throughout history and mythology, there have been many stories of the gods having relations with humans and conceiving super-children or demigods, as they're sometimes called. Hercules would be an example of this because he was actually the illegitimate child of Zeus and a mortal woman. Now, that's just myth. There was no actual Hercules. But it is interesting how uh, how many civilizations have narratives like these, and even in our context... Uh, the, the prevailing religion in the uh, greater Utah area area includes a narrative that Heavenly Father actually had relations with Mary. And that is how Jesus came to be. But if, if we're honest with that, that actually has pagan origins. It certainly doesn't have biblical origins or origins and for those of you who might be curious in seeing some first-hand quotations I have some with me in my notes I'm not going to take time this morning to go through those but I do want to point you back to this vital truth look again at the text in front of us there's a mystery being revealed and that is that the spirit will exert his power not in a sexual union in the sense that we would be familiar with that but he's exerting his divine power to bring this child into the world through the virgin womb of Mary. It's an awesome thought. It's one that we should never take for granted. There really is a lot at stake. And because God tells us this is how it happened, he wants us to believe in it, to be confident in it. Now, there's a second thing here. Notice the divine identity of the son. Go back to verse 31 with me, please. Gabriel tells her, you shall call his name Jesus. Again, she, like normal parents, will not have an opportunity to pick the name for herself. We love this name. It's the name that means Yahweh saves God's revealing himself to us. He's the God who loves, delights to save sinners. That's what we're being saved from. It's not salvation from Roman occupation. It's not even salvation for Mary from Nazareth. Some of you grew up in a really small town and you could only dream of the day that you would escape the small town community the lack of resources the things that frustrated you and you know then then you moved to salt lake city hit the big time <laughs> jesus didn't come to earth to save people from small town stuff and deliver them you know into big city stuff he came to save us from sin and that's why we love the title savior is he your savior Have you even come to a place where you've recognized like there's really deep, dark, bad stuff brewing in your soul? And try as you may, you can't discipline yourself out of it. You can't explain it away. You can't lawyer up and get somebody else to argue your case. You, at the end of the day, are left with a corruption that you don't know how to cleanse. You need a savior. This is the one the sin that's destroyed our souls and plunged us into death's dark grip, the sin that has placed our hearts in a vice grip of guilt and fear, of doubt and shame, the sins that we cannot scrub from our memories or our souls no matter how morally we may act or nobly we may live, but this child is given with this name from God so that desperate sinners like us might have a real hope God saves. Mary doesn't have a choice in it. But aren't you glad that God said, This is his name? Look at verse 32, the second part. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. I'm a little out of order there. Sorry. Verse 32 He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High just setting it up and we'll have time as we continue the series in Luke's gospel in the new year but the miraculous works that he will do express the divine heart and the divine power. Um, He's God, healing the lame, the blind, the dumb, and the leprous. These are the miraculous, not just touches of God most high but evidence that Jesus is God come in flesh. There we go. Third point of revelation As we continue at the end of verse 32, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's gonna be king. But not like Herod or any of the Caesars. He's gonna be far different from all of history's greatest rulers because chiefly he is the promised one that David learned of a thousand years before Mary is in the presence of this angel. The promise is given to David a thousand years before that a great one would come, and, and as Solomon ascended after David, we initially have hopes. Maybe he's the one, but he proves in short order he can't be the one. Hope begins to dim, and our faith is in danger of of fracturing, because underneath the weight of scoundrels like Ahaz and Manasseh, the promise seems like it's just not gonna happen. But possessing the throne of David by divine right and establishing a kingdom uh, that's not just for Jews, but a kingdom that has no boundary or borderline, no limit to his monarchy. This king is great enough to subdue the nations, and yet he is establishing a kingdom first of the heart And he doesn't conquer by unsheathing a sword, he actually conquers by going to the cross and paying the debt of our sins and beginning a work where he transforms you and me from the inside out, makes us to be what we could never make ourselves to be. But as he transforms us and conforms us to his image, the kingdom emerges from us. Oh, there is coming a day where he will unsheathe his sword and subdue all of his enemies once for all, and he will ascend David's throne and put his feet in the capital city of Jerusalem and ever reign. But right now, he comes to you and comes to me and says, I am your king. Worship me. Confess your sin. Worship me. Believe in me. Worship me and serve me with all of your days the Lord will give him this throne, and he will reign, and there will be no end. Now, finally, notice his divine consecration in verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, it is true that there are times where the term holy refers to sinlessness. It speaks of a of a moral purity, of an ethical uprightness. But actually, what you see Luke doing here is recording the words of Gabriel, and then later in chapter two, we're gonna see this term used again, and then chapter four, and what you begin to see is that holy is used in its more general sense of set apart, consecrated. That's why I've chosen that word to help you understand it. The question is, what is he consecrated for? Well, Luke 2, verse 23 records the moment when Mary and Joseph take this newborn son to the temple. And he, as uh, Luke records, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And they go through a little ceremony in the temple whereby they formally present him to be consecrated to the Lord. Then in chapter 4, in one of the first power encounters, as they are sometimes called, where Jesus confronts demons, Luke 4.34 records the terror of one particular demon who says, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What he's saying is not that you're perfectly pure. He's saying that you are the one chosen by God most high to establish authority. You have authority to destroy me, casting me into the abyss at this moment. Is that what you're here for? And the demon trembles in the presence of this holy one. He's been set apart. Set apart for this unique mission that will climax at the cross where he dons not a crown of gold but a crown of thorns and spreads his arms wide in sacrificial love, is nailed to the cross and pours out his life and pours out his blood as the once for all atoning sacrifice for the sinful people of all the world in all places in all times. He's a consecrated one. Now Luke will reveal more of that to us in time, but these are powerful portions of Scripture for our encouragement and designed by God to grow us in our confidence in our certainty. Now look at verse thirty-four because Mary's trying to process all, process all of this, but it does bring us uh, it, to a place where we see this lived out in her words and her response. Um, There's a bit of a reality check though. Verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now if you say that, that reminds me a little bit of Zachariah's question. Like he was wrestling with how can these things be? These, again, the work of translation is always trying to capture the heart of, of what was originally written down in a different language than we're using here today. Literally, the text reads, I do not know a man. And by that she means like, I, I'm keeping myself pure. I'm betrothed to Joseph, but we're, we're not having relations and there's no other man I would have relations with. I'm a virgin. Elizabeth's reality that Zechariah was wrestling with is that she was barren. So if Elizabeth were you know, in, in a little bit of a reality check, she would say, I'm old and I'm barren. And I began to think as I was meditating on this, you know, what are the reality checks I feel rising in my heart? What are yours? But look at how, we'll come back to that thought, but look at how Gabriel nurtures Mary's faith with a second behold. He just drew her attention uh, to the, the character and nature of the son will be born well he's got a second set of truth for her to set her heart on and that's where in verse 36 he reminds Mary that God has reversed Elizabeth's barrenness and then he says in verse 37 for nothing will be impossible with God oh this is great There's a reason to trust God fully. There are actually multiple reasons to trust God fully. And and Gabriel, who is the messenger of God, is is taking Mary's gaze off of her uh, her uncertainty at this point, even her liability. If she's going to be a mom, Like she can only see one way forward with that. And, And he says, Mary, consider your relative Elizabeth. God reversed her barrenness. And with God, nothing will be impossible. You may not say that I'm old and barren or I'm a virgin as these two women did in chapter one, but you might say I- I'm too sinful for God to forgive someone like me. You may say I- I'm-, I'm too unqualified or too untrained to serve God in the context of a church like this. I am and then whatever the blank is that emerges in your mind or I'm not enough or I'm too much and you look at that and it feels like a big time reality check but the powerful favor of God woven into these decrees of God and then empowered by the movement of God himself is actually what brings the impossibilities to pass. He's never looked at humanity and said oh, I'd love to do these things, but those people have so many liabilities and deficits, we just can't do anything there. No, with him, nothing is impossible. For more meditation and prayer, I want to encourage you to take this thought and begin to think through of all those things that seem so impossible in your world at this moment, and at the top of the list for many of you would be something like this. How will my spouse, or my children, or my dear friend ever come to faith in Jesus? With God, nothing is impossible. How, how could God ever forgive my sins? My past is so dark, I feel such great shame, I, I feel such great guilt, and it's true, and I'm not trying to hide it or, or defend it, but I'm just saying, how could God forgive me? Well, with God, nothing is impossible. Some of you say at a more practical level, how are we gonna pay those bills? How am I gonna provide for my family going forward? How will we do church if we continue to grow Uh, like we have in recent months. You know, there are a hundred how will this be kind of questions we could ask at this particular moment and God takes our focus and attention off of those little reality checks and says, look at me. Let me talk about my great son and let me talk about my great work through history. Do you remember how Paul argues this very point in Romans 8 where he says, if God did not spare his only son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him the gift he's already given, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And think of what goes into the category of all things. God's word and his long track record of doing the impossible fuels our faith to pray great things and to attempt great things for him right now. Please stop putting Mary in a different category. Please stop putting Zachariah and Elizabeth and Luke and Paul and Peter and John and the other disciples and individuals we're going to meet in the course of the gospel of Luke and recognize that the thing that made such ordinary people extraordinary in their lives is that an extraordinary God entered their world and they just began to believe him and take him at his word. Trust God fully. Number two, serve God humbly. Look at verse 38. Now Mary has her own behold. She's heard Gabriel say, Behold, twice. And, and this is so beautiful, so simple. Behold. Hey, Gabriel, I got a behold for you. And here it is I'm the servant of the Lord. Well, that, that is such a powerful and beautiful testimony. Faith in action. Like Mary, all of us are actually God's servants. Now, we create all kinds of identities and narratives for ourselves, don't we? It's one of the downsides of, uh, please, nobody take this personally, all right? But it it is one of the downsides of things like the Enneagram. We start pigeonholing ourselves and actually develop a kind of confidence and sometimes even pride that, that will limit our usefulness. And I'm all for, you know, f- find out who you are, be the best version of who God created you and redeemed you to be. But it's interesting that neither God nor Gabriel, Mary nor Elizabeth seem to be interested in whether or not, you know, she's a peacemaker or a challenger or a loyalist or an individualist. Not at this moment. She's just got servant, And she knows it. And she rejoices in it. I, I was thinking last night as I was putting kind of the final touches on this, how thankful I am to see the members of Gospel Hope serving in all kinds of ways, and and it's really sweet when you know some of the backstory, like, you know, that dude is really bright and gifted and successful, you know, in a whole realm of life that most of us might not enter, and, and yet he's hauling out trash after the Christmas brunch. Or that lady, wow, the things that she knows, you know, the the intellect that she brings here, but She's just there working behind the scenes. And they're scattered throughout the building today. Some are rocking your babies, praying that I'll quit a little earlier than I do so you can go rescue your child. (laughs) The dozens of people who just even yesterday organized, well, the week building up, organized and decorated and prepared and served and cleaned up uh, after the ladies' Christmas brunch. I was thinking of the building crew that came in Friday night to prep for painting, and then the couple of men who came in yesterday and started painting the new section, and we're making progress. The people who helped one of our families move yesterday, it was a busy weekend, lots of other things, and yet there are people just jumping in. All of them just servants. How do you identify yourself? If God's greatness and glory are actually beginning to shape your identity, then you understand where Mary is when she says, Behold, I'm just the servant of the Lord. Oh, you may be a lot of other things in addition to that, but that actually becomes primary. That's why we can serve Him humbly. Number three, submit to God completely. Look at what she says next. Let it be to me according to your word. She moves from how can this be to let it be. It's beautiful. Submitting to God for Mary actually is going to mean some really hard things for her. She's going to have to explain to Joseph and her family in short order what, not only what the angel Gabriel has said, but why she really is expecting a child. And you can go back to Matthew's gospel and see that he really wrestles with it because he, he, he can't put this together that his betrothed is expecting a child. He knows he's not the dad and he actually comes really close to divorcing her. She's going to have to endure the short-term turmoil of Joseph's response of her family and she's going to bear a lifelong burden of suspicion, doubt and accusation. You know, it'll be years later that religious leaders will actually say to Jesus, it's recorded in John 8:41, you we we were not born of sexual immorality. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? But that was the rumor that began at this point and grew and took root and never left that little family. So there's going to be hard stuff that follows this submission, but there's also going to be blessings untold, uncounted. Look at verse 42. Elizabeth first reinforces this notion when when her young relative comes in, and she says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, and that does distinguish her from Zechariah. By the way, remember God disciplined him and, and, and made it so he couldn't talk for a period of time. And then verse 48, Mary herself says, from now on all generations will call me blessed despite the short-term suffering, despite the turmoil and confusion of trying to explain and, and retell the story and, and, and justify, despite all of that challenge, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Submit to God completely because your present and future blessing is dependent upon it. Number four, rejoice in God personally. From baby John to Elizabeth to Mary, everybody is rejoicing. We don't have time to explore this, but baby John leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice, verse 41 and 44. Elizabeth expresses great joy at Mary's arrival, the imminent birth of her Lord, what God is doing. Verse 42 says she exclaimed with a loud cry. But let's take the last few minutes to explore Mary's rejoicing. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is is the perspective of a true servant. What she's saying is, as I sing, and I do think this is a song, but as, as she is expressing her praise for God, her desire is that God would be enlarged in the view of others. Mary doesn't make it about herself at this moment. My soul magnifies the Lord. Then she goes on to say, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she uses a term uh, we would probably say, like, I am ecstatic. And you're trying to capture, like, inside there's, like, this great leaping and dancing of spirit. You're just so overwhelmed with what God has done. And that's where Mary is at this moment. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then there are four, or, or three fours. Verse 48 uh, there are two of them in verse 49. So here, here's the specific reason. Like this is, this is what makes her spirit to just dance with joy before the Lord. First of all, verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That, that's, again, that's where she has an awareness of just humble beginning. This lowborn teenager, this nobody, has been raised up and exalted by God. Second, four. Four, behold, from now on, all generations will call me Blessed. She has an awareness that this is a monumental moment in the history of humanity. And then verse 49, the third reason, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. I mean, like she's just been transported into this presence of God in a sense like the mighty one of heaven is at work. His name is unique his reputation is above all others mary rejoices in god's work in her life but then as we press on notice that mary is also rejoicing in god's work in the world verse 50 his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation it's not limited to her it's not limited to elizabeth or zachariah god's mercy god's favor is for all who will humble themselves because that's what's included in fear and trust in him. Then at the end of verse 54, she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now she, and again, she's, she's well taught as a Jewish girl, knows the history of her people. But friends, brothers and sisters, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are part of the true children of Abraham there's a spiritual reality there that God has blessed all of us with, and I want you to think about this again, that here is this woman interacting with Gabriel, hearing astonishing things, makes the trip to Elizabeth, the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb, there are just these multiple confirmations that God is at work, her heart explodes in this great praise and she's mindful that what is being fulfilled at this moment are things that were promised 2,000 years before. And now we're another 2,000 years beyond that. God made a promise to a guy named Abraham. Former idolater, nothing extraordinary about him, but God shows him favor, pulls him out. Says, move to a land that I'll show you. Abraham just does it by faith, honors the Lord, waits and waits for the promised son, just one son of the thousands that were promised to him, actually, right? Because remember, God said, "Your, your children, your descendants will be like the stars of heaven, 25 years in he doesn't have the son of promise but then he comes and that story just continued to unfold person by person household by household until this very moment where a a teenage girl who never dreamed God would use her shows up with a special message and says blessed are you favored one We have a number of teenagers right here. Is there favor for you? Now this is a unique role. I wouldn't at all suggest that God might you know, run round two of the same story. But we're gonna argue from the greatest down through the lesser. Teenager, do you wonder if There's any favor of God left for you. You're nobody from nowhere. God might actually see you very differently than you see yourself. You might not even be able to say, like Mary, I've kept myself pure. But I can assure you from God's own record, there's more mercy and forgiveness in him than there is sin in you at this moment. Would you believe and submit and begin to serve? Some of you relate to Elizabeth. Maybe not in the barren sense, but you just say, well, I'm old. Life is over for me. Not a lot left for me to do. Really? This is the God who says with me, there's nothing impossible. Is there divine favor for any of us? And the answer, powerfully, clearly, personally, through this account, is a mighty yes. Yes, there is divine favor left for you. Yes, there is the forgiveness that you may need. Yes, there is the assurance that you so desperately long for. Yes, there is hope for you to continue praying for that spouse, for that friend, for that family member who right now wants nothing to do with God. There is a God, beloved, who is gracious enough, mighty enough, merciful enough, and holy enough to put our lives and this world back together. He is the king that was promised from long ago. He is David's rightful heir, and he will one day subdue the entire world. There is a Savior who can deliver us from all our sin and all our our, our shame and in the same way that Luke wrote to his dear friend Theophilus and said I'm putting these things down that you may have certainty so God has put these things down for you and me to have the same certainty what a God what a savior what a gospel